I'm Tara Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome to the show. Well, last week's guest, Professor David Wuxmuff, proposed that full-time Airbnb listings should not be allowed. Wow, that was pretty pretty uh, proactive there. Uh, and he said, Landlords should not have the right to transform long-term rental properties into something akin to commercial hotels. So, Professor Waxmuth was uh, in a bit of a Twitter exchange with uh, the Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky, I think his name is. And uh, as the growing chorus of concerns continues to grow about Airbnb, this week a Deloitte Access Economics report was released uh, about Airbnb. It uh, engaged Deloitte Access Economics to assess the economic effects of Airbnb in Australia. This report aims to quantify the economic contribution of Airbnb guest spending to the Australian economy and evaluate the economic benefits adjoined by guests, hosts, and the wider community. You might notice that it's all about the economic benefits, not about the economic costs. Well, let's have a look at this report and uh, provide a bit of a counter view to some of the, the concerns raised last week, where Professor Waxmuth was, was talking about uh, situations where the rental income earned through Airbnb was in some areas about 100% above mainstream rental pricing, uh, right up to 877% above the rental incomes that could be earned from an area. So it's a huge disparity there and one that is bringing significant change through many cultural hotspots, many tourist hotspots. But Deloitte Access Economics, who you see on the news all the time, they are pretty well guns for hire, but uh, uh, they've certainly delivered a report here that will please their uh, employers, Airbnb. Now, they state that hosts across Australia accommodated around 2.1 million guests for 3.7 million nights in 15-16. One of the drivers of Airbnb growth has been creating lower-cost accommodation options. They estimate a cost saving of around $26 million in the last financial year for guests staying in Sydney, who might have otherwise stayed in traditional accommodation. Now, I was interested in this analysis of uh, these savings, and uh, rooms in Airbnb listings are on average $88 cheaper per night compared to traditional accommodation in central Sydney while the difference is $50 per night outside central Sydney. So uh, you wonder what is happening to the hotel industry. Are they surviving this onslaught of Airbnb uh, listings that uh, continue to rise? 
Well, room occupancy rates, according to Deloitte, in tourist accommodation established uh, establishments with 15 or more rooms rose by 1.3 percentage points to 66.6% in trend terms in June 2016. According to STR Global, room occupancies in Australia were 75.7% in 2016, a figure which includes all hotels regardless of establishment size. This compares to 72.8% in 2010. So that's interesting. Airbnb is not destroying the hotel industry somehow. uh, There are more people uh, traveling and uh, enjoying the sort of uh, uh, insights you get when you do stay in Airbnb properties, of which, of course, I myself have enjoyed as I travel around uh, the country, the planet. Certainly been great to be able to stay at someone's house and get some insights on uh, local places to go, to borrow the bike, uh, go for a ride, and uh, get a a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what life is like in another city. One of the key non-price differences of Airbnb is location. Three-quarters of Airbnb properties in major markets are located outside traditional tourist areas. So that is interesting, isn't it, that uh, uh, so many of these listings are in non-tourist areas. Well, last week, uh, Professor Waxmuth was talking about how the, the greatest profits that he surveyed in New York were in cultural hotspots such as Harlem in North Manhattan, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, and Union City in its surrounding areas in New Jersey. So... If you remember back to that interview, there were less uh, listings in those areas, but the ones that were there were uh, leveraging in on these cultural hotspots and these uh, unique insights into life in uh, a non-mainstream sort of uh, perspective. And that's one of the big advantages of Airbnb. So tourism was estimated to contribute $53 billion to Australian Gross domestic product in uh, 2015-16, that's 3.2% of national income. So when we think of uh, the Great Barrier Reef uh, on its last legs, certainly was a a greyed out uh, wash of coral when uh, we were there last September. My tip is uh, to head to Ningaloo Reef in Western Australia. Much better snorkeling to be had there. You don't need to spend $600 to... uh, Visit uh, via a, a speedboat uh, out uh, some 20, 30 minutes away. You can just step off the shore and enjoy the Ningaloo Reef. All right, there's that tourist uh, announcement over. But, uh, yeah, it's a very important sector of the economy and too often the environmental effects of our smokestack economy uh, I just handed on to uh, uh, those in the tourism, tourism industry as if they don't matter. So what's happening here in Melbourne? And uh, I've done a bit of study looking at the total listings of Airbnbs here in Melbourne, and there were some uh, 12,153 properties on the Airbnb site, according to InsideAirbnb.com last December. And uh, I think in New York it was something like 
51% of all listings were full-time listings. Well, here in Melbourne, it was 57% of Airbnb listings were full-time listings. So uh, that is pulling out some 4.7% of possible rental properties from uh, Melbourne's rental market uh, in uh, the CBD of Melbourne. So there are 43,858 rentals in uh, the Melbourne CBD and uh, 3,217 of them are Airbnbs with 2,081 uh, dedicated rentals. So there are many savvy investors out there uh, buying up properties and you can click on particular owners and see how many properties they own in an area and inside airbnb is fantastic for that you can see that some property investors own five or six or more properties and uh, are uh, basically making a, a, a decent living off this when um, uh, they're, they're filling their properties for basically uh, less than a third of a year and able to earn more rents than what you can through the traditional rental market. And that is a worrying sign for those already struggling to afford a place to live. If this continues unchecked, where will we be in another few years? The sharing economy, they say. Well, Deloitte says, look, Airbnb, uh, the total economic contribution associated with the tourism expenditure of Airbnb guests in 15-16 was $1.6 billion, supporting basically 14,500 full-time jobs around Australia. Uh, and these guests spent about $2 billion in total over that time. And somewhere in here I've got the figures for how much uh, people were actually earning. Uh, it was around about $5,000. Here it is. Uh, Airbnb hosts in Australia earned a median income of $4,920 in 15-16, a fairly modest supplement to a household's main source of income, but which may nevertheless be handy for living expenses to pay down debt or to increase savings. Now that aspect of it being handy for paying down debt uh, and living expenses is something that you've heard me talk about, about how Real estate agents are uh, beckoning to their tenants to uh, list the property on Airbnb. Go on, rent out that spare room, do it. And as I reported after uh, the shock finding that in Sydney, it's quite commonplace for people to have six monthly rentals. Up in Byron Bay, it's 10 monthly rentals. They kick everyone out so they can uh, rent it out on Airbnb over summer there. Uh, but uh, yeah, of, of course... The agents are doing this because they know if uh, they spot this property on the market uh, listing out for Airbnb rents, they're going to be able to jack up the rents. So uh, whilst there is this ability to earn an extra five grand a year, that will uh, be capitalized into higher property valuations and from that higher rents. So who does win out of the sharing economy, we wonder? Of course, here on show 484 on The Renegade Economist, it is those who own the earth, those who own the land, who are the easy winners. Should the tax system support this sort of easy money, we ask. So 
Yeah, it's quite a concern that some 4.7% of Melbourne CBD has been turned over to Airbnb. We've been sold uh, a new skyline for the city that uh, we can have all of these skyscrapers because it's going to reduce the price of uh, housing, reduce the price of apartments. Well, that whole supply side uh, mantra is uh, being challenged by the fact that you could add this 4.7% to the some 3% vacancy rate we have here in Melbourne to say that, look, 7.7% of uh, properties on the rental market are not being utilised by the community that actually lives here. And this is one of the great distortions in this globalised housing market is that uh, the people who live in the location are having to compete with those who are earning money in different areas with different currencies and able to enjoy the ability to buy and sell property uh, with certain tax advantages in tow. So uh, it's that distortion where we have in Vancouver 65 times the median income to buy a property there. It's way out of kilter. How did it end this way? Well, alongside uh, all the sweatshop concerns that were going on with globalization, there was a lot of work done to increase the thresholds for foreign investment. And whilst uh, foreign investment really is still only accounting for about 10 or 11% of uh, all property purchases, Alongside of that are the domestic investors and private capital that are buying up real estate at a rate of knots. And that's something that we really need to uh, be concerned about. I've said uh, uh, recently that uh, local investors uh, benefiting from negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts are about four times a greater worry than what foreign investors are. And of course, uh, the foreign investment bandwagon is just so convenient for the murdocracy to roll out and uh, distort uh, everyday people's thinking into blaming foreign investors rather than looking at the whole property game. And that's what's uh, really causing concerns. And uh, last week we talked a bit about the rent gap and we didn't quite get on to uh, another measure out of Canada called the uh, Teardown Index. And this is an index that uh, has been developed to compare the value of the land to the value of the building. And when the relative building value is under 10% of uh, the value of the land, it's a strong indication that that property will be torn down in the next uh, few years. And so I think in Vancouver, something like 30% of their properties are due, are expected to be torn down by 2030 due to uh, this sort of evaluation of looking at the value of location going through the roof as the housing depreciates. Now, why is this of concern? Well, Australia's largest waste source according to the the Australian Environmental Economic Account System is housing deconstruction the waste from so much concrete so much rubble 
being destroyed and, and thrown into the, uh, into the landfill. So uh, whilst we encourage greater density, we need to grow up rather than sprawling outwards further than uh, the size of Los Angeles. There has to be some sort of balance. And if we had a system to keep a check on these rising land prices and recycle the value of uh, uh, these publicly created, these community created uh, uh, land values, then the incentive to destroy many a good home would not be so high. So uh, the concerns uh, in Australia with uh, uh, the state of the environment, the state of uh, our economic system to reflect the realities of what we're living through. Luckily, down here in Melbourne, we haven't endured uh, Cyclone Debbie and uh, some of the extreme weather that the Sydney uh, community, New South Wales, have uh, received some plenty of flash flooding and, and huge storms of recent. Well, uh, let's have a listen to this clip and just uh, ruminate on a, a fairer economic system for the future because that's certainly something uh, we need to really study up on so that the next time an Occupy type movement gets up, next time There's a decent... There's a lot of talk about the economy these days. We could do something better. Some people say the economy's taking off. Some people say it's tanking. If you really want to make sense of the economy, it's useful to take a big step back and ask yourself, what does economy really mean? But the heart is this tiny little word, eco, and eco means home. Ecosystem is all of the complex relationships of home. It's all the living things, it's all the people. An ecosystem isn't just the catalog of all those things, it's really the relationships. Ecology is the knowledge or study of home. It is the prolonged and thoughtful observation of the living world around you and the consequences of your actions in it. And then you get economy. Economy is simply the management of home. So there are three basic pillars that are true for all economies. You need resources. You need land, air, water. You need the living world around you. The second pillar is you need work, you need labor to combine with those resources to produce stuff. And then you need a culture, a cosmology, a worldview that tells us what we can do with our labor, towards what ends with the world around us. Then what are the pillars of the dominant economy, the economy that's all around us right now? Well, we get our resources through extraction we forcefully remove them from the earth. We call this the extractive economy because it's extracting labor as well. We don't view labor as its own valuable natural resource to be applied towards the well-being of ourselves and our communities. And the culture, the worldview, is one in which we can have endless and infinite growth that either ignores or denies the real ecological and social consequences. And the rules that govern this economy, with the use of speculation and financial instruments, are towards one very particular end. The accumulation of greater and greater monetary wealth and power. The big corporations are being governed really for the benefit of their CEOs. It's not even for the shareholders anymore. Certainly not for the workers, certainly not for the communities. In the same way that 
the basis of modern production is extraction from the planet. Modern finance is extraction from the larger community towards the financial community towards 1%. The system rewards certain people's effort far more than others. This is not only an economic issue about who's getting the money, it's also a racial issue, it's also a class issue. Capitalism has exploited people and often leaves out people of color, immigrants, minority communities, women. At some point, people are like, no, you cannot do that to me and to my community in my home. And therefore, the only way to keep it going is to use force. It's a banks and tanks economy. So the question is, if the extractive economy is what got us into the mess we're in right now, can it get us out? Not likely. What is required is fundamentally to transform, to transform the way things are structured. The depth to which corporations are integrated into economies around the world mean that we absolutely have to think at the global level, at the international level. We want to make sure that our productive systems are sustainable. We can't hope that a concentrated power on top just starts acting better. The way that we've been shown that can actually make sustainability in the long term is by breaking that power and by sharing that power democratically. We need to explore new ways of managing home based on that thoughtful and prolonged observation of the living world around us, ecology. The new economy has to step away and then push back at those old pillars because it has to be a new economy that is about sustainable resources, that puts people before profit, that puts planet before profit. The first pillar is to rethink our relationship to resources. There's simply no way that we can have this endless, limitless, infinite growth on what is, I think, obviously a finite planet. The second pillar has to replace the exploitation of human labor with a recognition that all wealth comes through work. And when we take our labor and apply it towards economic well-being, we can create a new cycle that's not based on extraction, but that's based on regeneration. That requires a new third pillar, a new way of imagining our relationship to each other and to home it's not only possible, it's happening all around us. One of the most inspiring things is that there are people and groups all over the country and the world who are organizing both to meet people's needs and to actually confront the systems that are underneath the crises. Underlying all of it is the small d democracy. I think it could actually change the way things are going to have people actually participating in the decisions that are governing their lives. Any economic transition has to have this notion of restructuring the way we think about ownership. Resources are owned by people, by communities. They are not owned by a corporation. The privatization of resources will have to end. That demands some political muscle, some organizing muscle, and some idea muscle. How do we develop new business models that create more local ownership and more democratic ownership? Not just bringing food into communities, but who owns the stores? Who's processing the food? Who's selling the food to the hospitals and the schools in the communities? We believe that the more people that have access to opportunities to be able to thrive, the better our society will be as a whole. The most basic thing we're talking about is human consciousness, and not in the sense of self-awareness, in the sense of how we behave, how we think, how we understand the world we're in, and how we form relationships. And the extent that we start transforming those understandings and those relationships, 
That's part of forming the new economy today, here and now. By looking at how we live, we can find how we can live better, more interconnected lives and simultaneously invest in and build the economy we know we need. And maybe even be happier for it. That's a clip called How We Live, A Journey Towards a Just Transition by edgefunders.org. You'll be able to find it in the show notes on earthsharing.org.au tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, how do we fund this just transition, one away from the extractive economy and towards one where we have a connection with our community, a connection with the environment? Well, that's where uh, this age-old story of uh, paying for the privilege of having access to the earth comes into play. And when we value uh, nature's resources, where the land component, uh, the location, location is by far and away the most valuable uh, aspect to life on Earth, then there's a solid foundation for ensuring that those who do own the best location pay something extra back to the community than those who live near the highway. So uh, uh, it's much better that the community gets a share of that rather than the banking system, which is what we have today. And that leads to a threefold increase in our pricing structure in that we have to be taxed for our work to fund government. We uh, have to put taxes on our food and uh, on employing people through uh, uh, sales and company taxes. And they could also go reducing prices. And then we have to pay interest on this supposed gift to all living beings, the land upon which we stand. And so uh, when those three components are all collapsed into one, on top of the fact that we have some 115 taxes that uh, raise just 10% of all tax revenue, revenue here in Australia, all of those taxes end up being uh, passed on down the line, uh, adding some 25% to our cost base. So uh, if you want to take neoliberals out, you really got to get stuck into this and uh, have a read of what people like michael-hudson.com are up to, uh, fredharrison.org as well. Uh, uh, lots of uh, people have been writing about a way to uh, unravel this extractive economy by taxing away the monopoly rents. Now, on the energy front, Australia is in a crisis. Uh, the Hazelwood mine, the world's dirtiest coal mine, is barely 48 hours away from closing. And uh, uh, the good people at reneweconomy.com.au have the graph of the day. Uh, last unit winds down at Hazelwood and it reveals that uh, with Hazelwood operating at just 8% capacity, it's still emitting 58 kilograms of CO2 per second. And if each household uses 14 tonnes of carbon per annum, Hazelwood's using equivalent to one household's uh, yearly uh, CO2 budget in four minutes. So uh, thank God that's closing down. Well done to the French company, who I think only bought the place about three years ago. Uh, it would be lovely to find out if uh, this has been a stealth operation to save the planet by shutting down this uh, dirty, dirty uh, power plant. So uh, analysis by the University of Melbourne's Climate and Energy College produced for the Greens found the average wholesale electricity price soared to $134 a megawatt hour in the summer just finished, compared to $65 to $67 in the two summers the carbon price was in place. Wow. Aren't these uh, uh, 
power uh, monopolists, the oligopoly, really price gouging us at the moment. They're using this excuse of the closure of Hazelwood to jack up their prices. And from that, uh, uh, many people are paying through the nose. Uh, uh, the price of electricity nearly tripled in 12 months in Queensland and New South Wales and doubled in South Australia. Because Victoria is so well connected on the grid, uh, we've been able to buy power at reasonable prices. So let's hope that uh, solar, I checked uh, the value of a, a three kilowatt system. We bought one some seven years ago for $13,000. It's now some $4,500 to purchase. Let's hope that pricing uh, fall continues so that more and more people can set up their own uh, power grid and do the right thing, uh, uh, looking after their own uh, footprint, if you may, via the solar system. All right, well, the boys from The Boldness have just walked in, so uh, it's time to wrap it up here at uh, The Renegade Economist. Thanks very much for listening here on the beloved 3CR Airwaves. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. <laughs> 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted.